Hi, I'm Michael Sinoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable mp3 audio business interviews i knew i needed a site that contained strategies solutions and inside angles to help you live better to save and make more money to stay healthier and to get more out of life i've learned a lot in the last five years and today i'm going to show you the skills you need to survive Hi, it's Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called How to Become a Business Idea Magnet. Attract the right ideas, grow them, and know when to walk away. It's an interview with my marketing expert, Vanish Patel. When it comes to business, most people have a tendency to try the kinds of things they think are going to be the easiest. But according to marketing and business expert Vanish Patel, you should know your own personality and the skills you bring to the table first, then look for opportunities that complement them. Vanish says if you do that, your best opportunities will also be the ones you don't have to put very much effort into. It's also important to recognize when to walk away. Having a successful business is a numbers game. If you have a good idea, nothing will stop you from succeeding. But if you have a bad one, no amount of money, effort, or perseverance you throw at it will make a difference. And in this audio interview, you'll hear how to find the kinds of business ideas that will work, how to grow them once you do, and how to recognize solid opportunities from the ones you should walk away from. You'll also hear how to avoid typical failures in business so you can figure out ahead of time if an idea will scale, what kind of negotiation and partnership you'll need to make it work, and how to determine someone's credibility just from the size of their business plan and what a successful business plan even looks like. You'll also hear real-life examples of the power of testing, not just business ideas, but marketing campaigns too, and how to do it. You'll hear the stages of investing, how companies usually grow from hitting up family and friends for money to going public. You'll hear about an insider's look at angel investing, what they are, how to find them, and the best ways to vet companies and become angel investors yourself. You'll also hear a little story that illustrates why it's so important to look behind your investment before you put your money into a deal and how to do that. You'll hear the one best and probably least known place to find solid companies to invest in. You'll hear about a simple laundry list of things to go over when it comes to your back-end sales that will make sure you're getting the most from every marketing effort. You'll hear money-saving tips that you can use for every event, including conference calls, so you know the most effective time to send out reminders, how to make problems easier when they come up, and they will, and the best ways to communicate with a group. You'll also hear strategies for warming up your list before you integrate a big marketing campaign. Look, Vanish says when you're first starting out in any business, one of the most important things you can do to attract the right kind of ideas is to put yourself out there, meet people, and take action. 
If you find successful people in your area of interest, hang out and build friendships with them. Once you do, it'll just be a matter of time before people want to do business with you and start handing you ideas and opportunities. And in this audio interview, you'll hear all about how to do that and how to make the most of those ideas when they come along. Now let's get going. Vanish? Speaking. Hey, it's Michael Sinoff. How are you? Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Good. Are you doing all right? I'm doing very good. I'm doing very good. So what did you want to talk about? We've gotten several emails from people who've heard the recording. One gentleman, an English fellow, he just emailed me, a guy named Peter Jennings, says, uh, Dear Michael, let me first thank you for the many hours of knowledge I have received from your hard-to-find seminar site. I've just been listening to your interview with Vanish Patel regarding his joint venture experience in the U.K., Being an Englishman myself, I thought that probably his knowledge of the procedures, legalities, and etc. would be better used to me than one from the U.S. Can you tell me if he does any books or courses on JVs which can be either supplied by him or yourself? If not, can you tell me if the course advertised by yourself on JVs would be one of use to me here in the U.K.? Now, here's something that always comes up from people and will it work for me in the UK are we really different in the UK than we are in the US what would you say to them because I hear this all the time I know it's funny actually because I was over in the States actually a couple of weeks ago for uh, a wedding it has been probably been 15 years since I was back in the States what actually happened was I left university uh, the early part of the 90s Straight after I graduated from university, I spent three months working in a convenience store in Atlantic City. I went to a university here in the UK. I got my degree. After you finished the degree, I had an opportunity to actually go visit and work for a few months in the States. So I thought, you know what, I should go out and see what America has to offer and see if I can learn some things and and everything. So I spent three months in the States. Just got a fairly just simple, basic job working in a convenience store. And what I did was I actually had the opportunity to work in a convenience store that was based in Atlantic City. And then literally, after I finished, walked down to the Atlantic City boardwalk. My cousin of mine was getting married, so I went to America, into Philadelphia. Whilst we were there, just sort of meeting people, and I spent a whole week there. I thought, you know what I'll do? Obviously do the things that I need to do regarding the wedding, but it would be good to kind of see America again almost sort of 15 years on. I went down to Atlantic City, check out the places and everything, and it was really funny. For the most part, nothing had really changed. The only thing that had happened is that it got bigger and brighter. And the way that people behaved, it's almost like, you know, 15 years, nothing has really changed. It's funny because when you sent that email, I saw the recording there. I thought, you know what, let me just listen to it because we sometimes forget the basics and everything. And I re-listened to the original recording that we did almost, is it three years ago? Yeah, it's probably been about three years, man. It sure has. It's probably of that sort of level. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, it's funny because principles do not really change that much. Tactics are always slightly changing and moving and adapting in the market. Everything that I kind of said in there is what I would do. And the funny thing was, I went to this wedding. I was visiting other relations houses. And you sit there and obviously you have the chat and then they're watching TV. And I'm picking up the yellow pages in their billing room, flicking through, and I'm just saying, this market's no different here. Okay, there are slight number differences, but the yellow page book in the US 
I saw the same information and tactics as I see over here. And the one I saw in Philadelphia is exactly the same one I saw in New Jersey. It's exactly the same one that I saw when I visited someone in New York City. You know, one of the things I always say to people is this, is if you can't make money in your own back garden, what makes you think you're going to be able to make money a hundred miles away? Geography is not a reason to determine success. People have this mentality of focusing on, oh, okay, let's try this because this is going to be easier, or let's do this. And I think they've got it all the way wrong. You have to know your personality and what's going to work based upon you to then find the right opportunity which complements your skills. Yes, it's important to have a good education and invest in material, but remember this, you can learn one system and it may not work for you. I have, in all my business experience, noticed very clearly that within a year, something that you're doing either transpires to be productive and have a future, or it doesn't really get anywhere. What only is propping up that business is your perseverance and not looking at the numbers. So, for example, with you, with what you did with the Hard to Find seminar site, that became very obvious that it was going to be a money-making opportunity for you a year down the road. You had that kind of good gut feeling because it didn't require that much work. And in fact, what you tend to find is the best opportunities are the ones you put the least effort in. You don't really push it. You didn't have people ringing you up saying, hey, you know, how are you developing that business? It just kind of looked bad as a sideline thing and it kind of drifted a little bit and you did a little bit and then you kind of left it a bit. And then one day comes the point where you say, right, I'm really going to commit. What happens if I really focus and I really put some effort into it? That's right. And what happens is this, is when you have a good idea, your lack of focus, independence and that cannot prevent it from succeeding. And by the same token, if you have a bad idea, all the effort, money, perseverance you put in, it's still going to end up being a bad idea. You just have to accept that you've got to try a lot of things to find a few that are going to work and learn to know when to say, right, this is not working, boom, let's move on, let's focus our energies now onto the next thing. Businesses and success is all a number game. We all understand that you probably need to speak to 20 people to find one customer that's going to buy. The same is exactly the true of business ideas. What happens is, is you can really only try one idea at a time, or you know, two or three at a time. So it does become a, when do you stop to say there's no opportunity here? So we understand, for example, when we're prospecting, let's spend a couple of minutes with the prospect and qualify them, see if there's some potential here, and we'll give them a grade. This is a hot customer, let's move with this, or this is so-and-so, or this is a waste of time don't need to continue this further. Now we'll do that because that kind of analysis period you can probably do within an hour or half an hour when you're in front of the prospect. But to say, right, okay, I'm going to spend a year on something or six months on something, we can get so caught up into doing it. Now that we've spent six months, we're kind of forced to saying, right, we've got to make this work because I've spent six months. One of the things I've learned is walk away from ideas that don't work that time is usually better spent focusing on finding the one that is going to work. All right, that makes sense. You know, you need to be not looking at that I've spent six months and it hasn't worked. It's about you've got to spend X amount of time to find that one. Because when you find that one, it's the least amount of work, it's the least amount of effort, okay, and it's effortless on your part, and you just wonder why you just can't get on with it earlier. And that's why a lot of people, when they look at all the things that they do, they don't really 
focus too much on the fact of trying out ten things. They want to make one work. And I'd much prefer somebody say, right, I've got these ten business ideas, evaluate each idea, do a bit of research on each of them, and then get in front of somebody that can say, right, let's evaluate that. Does it make sense? I mean, that's the bit that happens. You need to evaluate ideas to see if it has some potential possibility. Well, what would you say maybe to the Englishman who thinks that buying patterns are different from people in the UK because of the way they were brought or they're brought up more skeptical or they're not as entrepreneurial as people in the US? Do you see any of that? Well, I agree in one aspect and I disagree in another. First is this. How you sell to an American is different to how you sell to an Englishman. You have different language terminology, you have different expectations, but the principles are the same. And what happens a lot of times is people will take an American concept and they won't customize it to the local dialect. What's most apparent is when you watch TV shows, a lot of people have learned about global businesses. So if you take something that is syndicated out, you find that there are two types of translations that occur. So if you take a TV series like Friends, huge, very popular format, they have discovered that in doing that TV show, it translates without any customization and without any change as it is, because it's a very American-style format. Other people appreciate that format and the jokes and everything, they translate well. But other TV shows, they found the American version doesn't translate and it needs to be reshot UK actors and some of the dialogue needs to be changed to get the message across. And what happens is, is people simply don't test. What they do is they go and find an American concept and they literally copy it word for word. And they don't test to say what needs to be changed, what doesn't need to be changed. And what you've got to remember is that roughly people will follow a very typical buying process. So for example, I'm involved quite a lot within the real estate industry or as what we call here in the property. You don't talk to someone in the UK about selling real estate because that's not the language, it's not the local word for it. You talk to them about property. In America, it's very common to talk to people about the note on their house. We don't have notes. Notes are like musical instruments. Right. Or, you know, writing something down. We have the word called mortgage. So you've got to learn to translate a few of these things. But the principles don't change that much. We have slightly different legal laws and tax laws, which means you have to adapt the process. But do the principles work? Mm -hmm. Yes, because people buy from people, people do business with people. Right, people are the same no matter where you are. Exactly. There is no difference. I mean, one of the interesting things was when I was over in the U.S., it was just so funny because I had studied a lot of the U.S. marketing stuff. When I went indoors or talking with people, I was able to communicate using their language. Because I didn't have to, what does that mean? Because I saw so much of the American marketing and language and everything, but I can translate. And often when I'm talking with you, I'll use the word dollars, kind of get into the American style, as opposed to talking about pounds. Because you just get used to listening, watching other people in marketing, and they always use the word dollars. So you just kind of pick that up. Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking to a very uk oriented crowd, Okay, my language, my presentation is in a format that they can understand and get the message. It's important to be able to get the message across, right? And so you've got to learn the, the subtle language differences. So in America, it's very common to be able to go up to a complete stranger and say, hey, let's do business. They don't mind being approached. They're very used to people propositioning 
and saying, hey, I'd like to talk to you about business. Whereas in the UK, you have to kind of say where you are from. You kind of have to give yourself in the hierarchy and get people to know you a little bit. So in the UK, you've got to spend a bit more time warming people up to build that trust and credibility. But these little differences don't make that much. The real question is, will you work the system? And this is where I see a lot of people, they go and find something and then they over-customise. They translate things where they shouldn't. We all understand that there are certain key phrases, certain key things you need to focus on, which make whatever system you're following successful. And it's funny, people tend to always want to customize and change it for their market so they know better, as opposed to testing. Try two or three different interpretations and see which one works the best. So, for example, we've been doing a lot of work with Google AdWords and um, notice that just language for different markets and just certain words will trigger responses and others don't, even though you're describing it in the same way. Just simple things like that that people wouldn't otherwise really think about. So tell me, what have you been up to? Since we talked three years ago, you had asked me what I've been doing, and I told you I was still focusing on developing my own content. You know, selling the pre-owned J. Abraham stuff was limited, limited supply, and it wasn't something that was going to be around for the long term. So I needed to come up and create and develop my own products, and that's what I've done. I've probably got about 12 or 13 products to sell. I've been setting up different streams of income, different information products. I could go through a little list and give you an idea of some of the stuff I'm doing. And so as I've developed these products, my website has taken on a different form. Instead of just giving everything away, yes, there's about 125 hours of free content. But now when I'm spending time doing interviews or I'm working on the website, there's an ulterior motive. I mean, I want to educate and give great value, great free content, but I want to direct and move them towards a product that I'm offering or selling. Did you ever listen to any of the recordings with Art Hamill? I did. I got to see the manual and the view of the recording. Art Hamill was a classic one. It's funny, actually, because... no, since about 2001, I think it was probably one of the first times I spoke to you. It's funny, actually, because looking at your site, it's amazing how the site develops and how you develop and how your list develops. You, you can see the transition of how, as you develop, okay, your site becomes a slight... It has to change its model, the number of customers and people you're interacting with. You need to have a new model. Since about 2001, I've always had this element where I've been investing in startup and fast growing companies. You know, when I listened to that, I never picked up on that, the angel investing, when you said you were an angel investor. And when I had talked to you back then, I didn't even know what it was. But since then, I had done interviews with angel investing organizations. One of those I remember you doing with a local uh, UK person. Yeah, did you know that guy? Yeah, yeah, Lauren. I speak quite regularly with him. Are you a member of his angel investing Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I have lots and lots of contacts. Lawrence. What was his last name? I think it was Gilbert. Lawrence Gilbert. That's right. That was a great recording. Yeah, and he gave a very fair assumption of how business angels are. And they're a quirky bunch of people and very into business but they're not necessarily into seeking lots of attention and everything. No, it's a great idea. It's a great investment, too, if you know how to spot opportunity. Just give an explanation of what angel investing is, just in a nutshell. Okay, we all know that you can go into the stock market and say in the U.S. there's probably about two to 3,000 stocks there. The size of those companies that come onto the stock market are fairly mature. Say something like Microsoft, who are doing billions and billions of dollars, or someone like IBM. The opportunity for that business to double next year is pretty rare. Now, when you can get involved in companies the earlier the stage, 
the faster they tend to grow and the more profit you will make by being involved in that. Mm -hmm. So somebody that got involved with Microsoft way back in the early 80s is retired on some Caribbean island right now. Because once you're in, you can just ride the train forever how long it's going to go. Remember I told you I left university in the early 90s? Well, for the most of the 90s, I spent my daytime working in a big city corporation. And in the nighttime, I would spend two to three hours a day, every day, researching the stock market, researching businesses, and just finding the right kind of companies that have got the fast-growing ability. If you can find a company that's growing fast, its stock price is going to go up, its value is going to go up. Were you successful doing that? Did you find um, some? Yeah, I was reasonably successful. Funnily enough, the stock market sort of peaked at about 2000. And I've been doing this for sort of seven, eight years, continuously doing it. And I just decided in 2000 that I was going to kind of quit investing in the stock market and just take a bit of time out and rest. So I sort of kind of cashed in in 2000, which was right at the top. And then the market kind of dived, and that was pure dumb luck. Just the fact that I felt I wanted to take six months out and just not focus on investing and just kind of recharge my batteries a bit. And that was good timing on my part, but it was pure dumb luck. And so what I decided to do, I felt that it was important to develop a bit of the real estate side of my business mm -hmm. because um, you need to have something that's a bit long-term that you can hand over that's easier to manage. Investing in the stock market, you do really need to keep your eye on the ball and everything. And I thought, you know, I should really develop that side of the business. So I got involved with uh, a few projects in that. Anyway. And the other thing that I did was, when I'd been doing all this investigating, what I found was the companies that were just coming onto the stock market, those were the ones that were fast growing. And I thought, you know what, I need to see and see if I can get in on these companies two or three years before they come on the stock market and really make a good killing. And so what I found was I focused on the angel investing, which is funding unquoted companies, i.e. companies that are not listing. So what happens is this. Obviously, a company will go through this whole phase. It, you know, a bunch of guys will set up a business and say, hey, let's get together and let's do business. And they'll start going out and they'll start getting business and everything. And then what they'll do is they'll approach their friends and family saying, hey, do you want to invest in this business? We think we can do this, this, this. Once the business gets going, it moves into this next sector, which is the business angel, which is the professional investor, mm -hmm. who will say, right, I'll invest in this business and help it grow to a point where we can then get the, the institutional investor, which is where the stock market gets in, so you get the funds then putting money in. Right. So, for example, I'll give you an example. I invested some money in 2001 in a business. Can you describe what it was? It was a online advertising business. You know when you go into Google? Mm -hmm. and then you type in a word. If you type in the word business card, you get a whole bunch of advertisers on the right-hand side because probably someone typing in business card is probably interested in printing some business cards. And so you can pay Google to have your website listed against the search results that go there. Now, this company does something similar to that, but it does it in a slightly different way. Obviously, you type in business card or whatever, you might be interested in knowing about the dynamics of business cards, or you might, for example, type in antivirus software. You're not quite ready necessarily to buy antivirus software. You want to kind of research it. So what happens is Google will give you all these sites that have got articles on antivirus. So what happens is you click on that and you end up getting what we call to a destination site, an end site where you start reading. So for example, hard to find seminars is an end destination that people eventually get there then. and they start reading this stuff what you generally tend to find is the topic of what people are reading you can get an idea of what's most relevant to advertise for them 
So, for example, Google have a solution for destination sites called AdSense. And what happens is they scan the page, look at the words on the page and get an idea or feel for what that page is about, and then they put little ads on that relate to the kind of same ads that you would see when you're typing something in searching. They do effectively the same sort of technology. The only difference they do is that whereas AdSense tends to create banners with the little ads in, this actually creates it within the text that you're reading. So what it does, it will take the page and it will highlight three words which are the most relevant from an advertiser's perspective. And if you put the mouse over them, a little window appears and a little bit of the ad appears. You could be reading an article on antivirus and the fact that there is a word like um, Trojan program. Someone may be bidding for that word Trojan program. So underline it and highlight it from the text. So you've got potential adverts and you can just click straight onto that if you want to find out information for it. If you just want to continue reading, the only difference will be one or two of the words are highlighted. Are they highlighted like in yellow or a hyperlink? They're highlighted in green actually and they're underlined and they're hyperlinked. This company that you invested in as an angel investor, they had developed a software or the whole company that does this? Correct. In 2001, there were five people in the company. Were they out of the UK? In the UK. How long have they been in business? One year. So they formed in 2000, and in 2001 is when I met them and that's when I invested. How did you find out about them? Through my contacts. As I said, I had lots of contacts with accountants and other people in the business world. And they send me pretty much on a daily basis. I get about one business plan a day. But when I read them, I look at the ones that I'm particularly interested in. And, mm -hmm. and some I'll just read. I won't get beyond the third page. And so these people are actively seeking capital? Correct. So what they did was they sent me a copy of the business plan. I met with them. They presented two or three times, I grilled them with a whole bunch of questions. Then I made my decision as to whether I felt that this was going to be something that was going to go forward. So in 2001, their business was turning over about $20,000 or about £10,000 a month. And there were five people in the business. We had a shareholder meeting actually just a couple of weeks ago. So now this is in 2006, so summer of 2006, which is roughly five years on. There's roughly now a hundred people in the business and it's doing about two million dollars a month right which is about a million pound a month here's the bit it's still growing at a hundred percent per annum did they need multiple investors or are you a major we investor we had a multiple we had a syndicate of about 15 people and we collectively put in about half a million pounds to get it going so if you invested about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars you own shares in the company correct in proportion to what you invested here's the thing this business has grown a hundredfold in five years, and it's still growing. To be honest, I have very little involvement in that business now. You don't do anything now. I'm just a shareholder, and, you know, my holdings will double in value because the turnover is going to double. I'm just sitting and waiting for the day it floats. What do you mean when it floats? Uh, when it IPOs. When it goes to the major institutional stock. Correct. On the U.S. and world markets, right? That's right. Obviously, there has to be a certain size of company for it to be worth people wanting to invest. So for example, Google has followed that same path. Google has gone in seven years from a zero company to two billion in sales and is worth eighty billion dollars. Eighty million? Eighty billion dollars. Google's worth eighty billion. Yeah. Do you know a company called Time Warner? Sure. How long have they been around? No, they've been around forever. Google is worth more than Time Warner. Now here's this. That's the same thing. It IPO'd last year. Now imagine you had the opportunity to get involved in Google four or five years ago. Oh man. 
it doesn't matter how much of it you bought, you could just buy a tiny, tiny bit, okay, you'd be retiring to the Cayman Islands. Having said that, I've had plenty of failures. In fact, half my investments have gone... Were these angel... Did you invest it? Nothing's proven. Yeah, nothing's proven. Is this the most exciting one you've got going? Yeah, it'll probably... Tell me about a couple failures and what mistakes you made and what would you do different if you had to redo it again? Well, I'll give you one that's kind of similar because this is where I think you pick up the key element. I invested in a guy who was doing a free distribution real estate directory. So basically what he was doing, you have your local papers, don't you? Yeah. And in there there's always the real estate section, the property section. And what he was aiming to do was to demonstrate a free distribution real estate property directory, but to focus on making it colour, okay, and distribute it around the house. The idea being that he was going to approach local estate agents to buy advertising and break even on the distributing of that magazine from the money that was generated from the estate agent and then really cream it by selling space to people looking at selling furniture, home improvements, that sort of thing. It's a very standard model. People all want to be looking at buying houses, so that's easy and you get the estate agents and you get plenty of estate agents and they're always looking at advertising. Then what you do is you then say, right, the price, if you're going to be a kitchen manufacturer or a builder or a trader, it's three times as much. But because you've paid for the distribution and the printing from the estate agent, any money that you get from the advertiser for a kitchen is all potentially all pure profit. Right, so what happened? The issue was this, loan entrepreneur. And this is one of the things I've learned in my elements is... Had he done anything or just an idea? No, no, he'd had a couple of issues printed, distributed them. He was great at getting estate agents on board, knew what to say, knew the process had not only him selling, but had a team of people selling, knew kind of where he was going in that way. How much money did he need? I invested 25000 Were there other investors or just you? No, there was just me in that one. All right. What did you negotiate? You invest twenty-five grand. What did you ask for? I asked for a percentage of, of his business. Can you tell me the civic? Sure. It was roughly about 10% of his business. All right. For twenty-five grand? 10% of the business. So would that be like stock? Yeah. When you met him, was he incorporated? He'd been all incorporated and was doing okay. So we negotiated to take a percentage of the company based upon his projections, and we kind of negotiated around the sort of 10%. There was a few options on if it did as well, then we would get maybe a bit more or a bit less on how the company performed. All right, go ahead. But in principle, what happened was that when you're dealing with a team of people, a team will always achieve more than an individual. And when you're investing in an individual, it's a bit emotional up and down. And so what happened was there wasn't really his ability to build a team to make the business scale. So one of the things I know from when I met my other group back in 2001 was there was five people in the business, but they had complementary skills. And I knew that these people were the kind of people that could run an organization with 100 people in it. Looking back, I knew that this chap would never be able to run an organization with 100 people. And sometimes we're just interested in kind of investing to kind of go two, threefold. The lesson would be when you're looking at your investment, you've got to look at who's behind the investment. You're really investing in a person. Exactly. And what you've got to look at and say, has this business got the potential to go 100-fold? What we know in marketing is we're going to really not get very far if we do one-time sales. If you've got a thousand names on your list and you know that you've got one product for a hundred dollars and ten percent of those people buy, then there's not much 
return on your effort. Because it's going to cost you a fixed amount to get those customers. If you've got higher value products and a back end, the profit that you make makes a huge difference because the marketing cost in marketing those back end products is minimal. It's almost literally just like getting a whole bunch of cash. And you saw that if he could get real estate agents and advertisers on board and their advertising was paying out, that was continual revenue. Absolutely. Now what I learned was he could do it in one area, but he couldn't build a team that would cover the whole of the UK. So there's often a good idea, but then the ability to take it and manage the team. Load entrepreneurs are load entrepreneurs for a reason. You know, there's a personality issue that can occur. And I didn't think that that was such a big significant thing when I was investing. Because you think, okay, the idea, is the idea good? And you can have a sound idea, but you've got to have the right people to be able to implement it and scale it up and deal with all the issues that happen. When you're getting so pernickety that you're involved in all the day-to-day -day processes, how far can your business go? Yeah, you've got to have a team. And you've got to be able to negotiate and deal with people and get what they want, not just what you want. That's why a lot of people don't have businesses that will ever scale because they've just not got the personalities to share and grow a bigger business. You know, it's lessons learned and have a much better idea of the things to focus on. And it's only by sometimes failing do you realize what's important and what's not important. No, absolutely. All right, you want to do another failure? Because you can learn a lot from these. Some of the other failures that I've had have not been involved with necessarily like a loan investor. What i found is, and this is a very typical thing, is it just doesn't scale. Well, what do you mean scale? Because that's a UK term. It doesn't grow? Yeah, and here's an example. You've got a business where you test the model, the people are there, and they try to grow the business. And what they discover is when they grow the business, the market's just not there. A classic example, one of the things I say is, here's a model, you've gone to like a pizza restaurant or a pizza takeaway. Typical ways that pizza restaurants and pizza takeaways generate business is they uh, go door to door putting out leaflets about their menu. And often what happens is we see business models in this way. People say, well, this is what we've demonstrated and this is how it will scale. So, you know, we put out a thousand leaflets and we get 10 phone calls for orders or 20 phone calls. So if you doubled the number of leaflets, what would you expect to happen? You'd expect it to double. And if you did 10 times the number of leaflets, what would you expect? 10 times, but it doesn't work that way. Right. The reason being is because there are other factors being placed. And the thing about leafleting is it doesn't scale because there's only such a certain distance people will go for a pizza. And so what happens is the market size is not the UK housing population. It's about 15 minutes from the pizza joint. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. And a lot of times we invest in businesses where they say, okay, well, what we've done is we put out a 1,000 leaflets and we've got this result. And what we need is we need money to put out 10,000, 50,000. And if we put out 50,000, we'll get X. And as the business grows, it suddenly hits this bottleneck. And it's only then do you realize that the customer is not willing to go beyond X or you can only reach so far. You know, it's a bit like your business. It's a finite number of people because there's only so much traffic you can get. There's only so much people that are really genuinely interested in your material. That's true. Your limiting factor is not the number of people that necessarily come to the website, but the time that you can allocate to doing the marketing to get more and more people. So we hit these natural limiters. You could say, well, I get a thousand visitors a day if I do this. And what happens is the limiting factor is not getting 10,000 visitors. Yes, yeah, my time and effort in getting them to the site. Because what happens is you reach a bottleneck based upon the fact that you get all these people to the site. Now you've got to spend all your time dealing with customer service. 
which means that you can't spend time getting more visitors. That's right. This is why when I look at a lot of businesses, we talk about scalability. How far can it scale truly? Yeah, you're talking about growth, right. What happens is, even if you're in like in a consulting type business, there are only so many hours in the day and there's only so much per hour you can charge. When you look at people, you can't just keep adding zeros and doubling the advertising spend. If you double the advertising spend, you've got to find double the market of opportunities to go and go through. Well, a lot of times what I look for is I look for businesses where there's reasonable research that it can go a hundredfold and that the management team have the capability of doing it. So I'm not investing in a local mum and pop store because that doesn't really have the capabilities of getting listed on the stock market. So when you look for these opportunities, are a lot of the opportunities come along where they're shared investments? So if the company needs a million bucks, they may get 10 people with 100,000 to go in on it? Exactly. It's very rare nowadays that you can really take off a big business and have one investor. And investors prefer to share out because what happens is, is you may be able to finance one company but you're putting all your eggs in one basket and it's better to say right here's what I'm going to do I'm going to put my money into ten businesses knowing half are going to fail and half are going to do something but I'm working on the basis that one in ten of those is really going to fly because I don't have to put a lot in with a flyer you didn't have to put a lot of money into Google if you got in at the right time that's true right to make a lot of money if it's going to fly, it's really going to fly. When you invest in these businesses, I guess in some business, like with the advertising guy, you invested your money. Was that something you wanted to put your expertise and time into? Yeah, I normally like to invest where I can bring something more than just the money. I can bring my expertise, I can bring my connection, I can bring my contacts, etc. Again, I invest in what I know. I market products that I know and understand, and I work with markets that I know and understand their behavior. All right, very good. You shouldn't risk in just saying, oh, that's a nice sounding thing. I think that will go well. So if someone wanted to look into investing in businesses, what would you tell them? Where would you direct them to look for opportunities? Where could they find business opportunities like they do um, I think the best place to go is certainly go and speak to like your local accountant and solicitors because they're the people that are dealing with other business owners. There are professional places on the internet. If you just type angel investor mm -hmm. or business angel, there's lots of clubs that business angels hang around. Again, no one investor is going to fund a company. If I put an ad in the paper saying private investor has money to invest, I would just get all the crackpot. So what then tends to happen is we congregate through a business club and people approach that business club with their idea and they're screened. And the ones that qualify for having some level of sense are then presented. Mm. But typically what will happen is in an afternoon, six companies may present. You get a bit of variety, mm -hmm. which then incentivizes me to come down and spend the afternoon looking at different businesses, because I know out of six, I'll probably find one or two that's interesting to investigate. So what happens is, uh, you join the club, the club does a lot of the pre-screening, it does a lot of the marketing, find opportunities, it does the kind of first level filter, and it picks the best six to stand up and present or to be circulated around members. And then members are free to go and contact those people. It's a bit like how you have your telephone number on your website and you may have an answering service that kind of filters out a bit of the calls. Finding the few people that you really want to have a conversation with and that are committed and have made sense. So what I do is I have my contacts and I'm a member of a number of clubs and people get to know me and through word of mouth and basic marketing and everything we get proposals to come through. I'm very good at assessing them now, having read over a thousand business plans in the last sort of five years, I can do them 
What kind of business plan really gets your attention, and what kind of business plan bores you where you won't get through the first two pages? Well, the first one is just the ones that are too long. I think if someone's written a 50-page business plan, they're not an entrepreneur in the business sense. They're just somebody that's got far too much time on their hands. The, the thing is, it's very simple. It's the ones that tell an interesting story. You've got to have how we got to where we are, what we're doing now, what we intend to do. The ones that can have a logical conversation going through. Very much like the sales letter. It's the sales letter. I mean, if someone presented you a business plan in the form of a sales letter, you know, the standard copywritten, good, hard-hitting sales letter, that would do just as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. In fact, when you're doing a two-page, uh, what we call an executive summary, so what happens is, if you've got a, a business plan, it might be somewhere in the region of 15 pages, 20 pages, that sort of level. It could be up to 30 pages. I don't read the whole business plan. What generally tends to happen is there's a two-page exec summary, and that you have to sell the time commitment for somebody to read the business plan or at least, you know, read bits of it. It's a sales letter for the business plan, basically. Exactly, right? And you've got to demonstrate where you've had credibility, what you've done so far, what the future potential is, you know, the relevancy of management, all the same sort of things that you would do in a good sales letter, you know, testimonials, a guarantee, milestones achieved, that sort of thing. Uh, and what tends to happen a lot of times, business plans fall into two categories. There's those that absolutely need money to go forward and those that would go faster with money. Desperate and non-desperate. Exactly. And what I call it is the difference between those that want to borrow money and ones that have an investment opportunity. So you want to stay away from the ones who are desperate? Yeah. What happens is this. If they absolutely need money, then you are the customer. They're trying things out. Now, there's always a bit of a chicken and egg. How does a business kind of get started? You know, let's say it's going to write a piece of software. So it needs to write the software before it can go to customers and sell it. And so a lot of people write a business plan. We need half a million dollars to write this piece of software, and then when we sell it, we can go to these customers here and we'll get X. And you know what I tell people? I say, go and sell something to those people to demonstrate me that they will buy from you. Within a similar context to what the software is. For example, typically most software solves some form of problem. So what they do is they can create a training course on that problem and sell some advice and see if they will buy. And if they won't buy the training program, the one-day seminar, and you can't flog 10 tickets to a one-day seminar, what's it tell me about your ability to sell a complicated product like a piece of software? Yeah, the market's not there. Either you're not able or the market's just not there. So what happens a lot of times is people haven't really thought through their business process. They've just used the crutch of, well, if I had a lot of money, I'd really be able to get there. Look at your website. You didn't put too much into it, did you? You didn't actually really even develop a product, built a list. And over time, the customers have said back to you and said, oh, we want this. Have you got this? Have you got that? You were very aware right from the beginning that you needed to have some of your own products and have something a bit unique as a proposition. And, you know, you take it at the right pace to go forward. Now, if I'd given you a whole bunch of money, you would have just got lazy. Yeah, that's true. Because you wouldn't have thought, okay, let me bother doing research. You would have said, oh, okay, right, we really need to make the website look slick. We really need to have this. And you're not looking at saying, right, how can I take that money and use it to improve the process and make more money? Now, for example, when you were doing your pay-per-clicks and, and doing all of those things, mm -hmm. right, there was a benefit to using Capital to get a sale at the end. But now you've got enough in knowing how to do the communication 
that you're what we call kind of classically self-funded. Sales has enabled you to develop your business through internal cash flow. Yes, that's true. And so the reason that you don't necessarily make a great investment is because there's no exit because you are the business, right? Which is fine. You know, I am my own business, okay? I don't make a great investment because as soon as you get rid of me, what is there? There's not that much. Big scalable businesses, if Bill Gates didn't turn up to work, the business would still continue. That's the kind of business that you want to have at a point where the CEO and the major founders don't pay a significant role or they can be easily replaced. These guys that started this business a couple of years ago, they're still working in the business because they want to get it to uh, flotation. But when it floats, they know it will IPO, they'll hang on for another year or two, just part of their contract to make sure the business is still continuing in the right direction. And then they'll be free to go off and do whatever they want to do. That'll be great. I've managed to get involved in that and I've not had to spend a day doing anything for them and it still grows at 100%. That's great, that's exciting. It's, it's still early days, but it should make about a million dollars. Should be your investment? Yeah, which is not bad really, is it? No, not at all. It pays for all the failures, so yeah. I don't get to keep all of that, but it's a good use of time. It is very good, real good leverage. You're investing in someone else's idea and time. Now in that whole business, I have never spent more than probably 50 hours. That's great. Well, that's what a good business opportunity is all about. Yeah, traffic starting and scaling. Okay, good. Are you still working with the mortgage leads? That one got bought out a while ago. The person that I was doing that with continues to just provide some advice. And uh, we kind of exited that business because we had a few legal changes within the UK. You have in the US the do not call list, don't you? The telemarketing. Yeah. So we have similar issues and laws being applied here in the UK. Tell me what was happening. The whole principle of cold calling people at home. Um, you have this big thing, don't you? That yeah, there's a do not call list. You can't be telemarketing residential homes. Similar laws being applied here in the UK. A few years ago, it was okay. People could ring as long as they rang after 9 a.m. but before 9 p.m. These were leads of people filling out a form saying they'd like to request more information. Sure. What I'm saying is that a lot of leads are not generated off the Internet. Oh, I Still see. Still generated through telemarketing, uh, through newspaper advertising. So the amount of leads that are actually generated off the Internet in overall is relatively a small market. But what happened was there was a few laws being applied that prevented companies from using the telephone as a means for generating leads. It just became more work. So what that did was it meant the leads that were generated over the internet suddenly became more valuable. And the businesses that were generating leads over the internet became more valuable to people who had a high reliance on the telephone. And so it just got swallowed up because people went and said, okay, you can do stuff over the internet, boom, 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 rather than buy one or two leads, we'll buy all the leads that your business is going to generate over the next three, four years. Oh, I see. Because you just buy the company out. And that's what happened. Yes. And so what happened was, where we used to do this model of distributing it to different mortgage brokers... Didn't work. No, it worked. It worked. It got bought out. Yeah, because what happened, somebody said, I'll buy all your leads for all the things you generate. Which is the typical way that happens, it's like buying your customer base or buying your business. You know, once you've got, for example, a restaurant up to a certain size and you've got X number of customers coming in and you've got your advertising process in place, you know, you know all the right places to do and you've got people working and everything, 
it's relatively easy for someone to come in and say, I'll just take it over. It's been de-risked. It's been established. It's been proven. Right. So you're not doing that anymore. Tell me, what else are you doing? You're investing in real estate with Deep? I'm actually um, doing a fair number of things in the real estate. I run in the UK probably uh, the largest club for people who are interested in networking with other property investors. So that's actually now become, again, a little business that really didn't, go anywhere, but it's evolved and evolved. Does Deep have his own club, or is this your club? My club. Deep has his club, and he runs his uh, course, but what I do is I do actually live events. So what I have is meetings held in locations around the UK. So we have London, Birmingham, Manchester, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Ipswich, where you can meet local property investors. So every month in London, I meet up with a hundred like-minded property investors. So it would be like, for example, you running hard-to-find seminars and saying, hey, I'm going to be in this area, would you like to meet up with me? And you will have lots of people on your list actually say, hey, I've heard of Michael Sonoff, I've seen his email, I'd like to meet him. So a lot of people take Deep's course online and everything. He likes to have the opportunity to meet his readership and he comes to my event because we're already organizing it. Season just turns up and there's a whole bunch of people who are interested in property. Very good. What kind of presentations do you put on? We just put like a social get-together. You're not selling anything there. No. What we find is that you don't really need to sell anything. You just provide an environment for deals to go down. Exactly. So the key element is that if you're the watering hole where people hang out, deals will eventually come your path. You know and I know, if you run a successful bar in town and all the business people hang out there, what's the bar owner going to end up doing? He's going to earn the deals. Exactly. So what happens is I run a club and I meet people and I say hi and introduce them. They have a chinwag. Occasionally, people, you know, in between meetings will say, hey, there's this deal here. And I sit down and we chat. Do you charge people to be in the club? Yeah, we charge a nominal fee, $10 if you just want to come to one event mm-hmm. or $50 for the year. Okay, very good. We're not looking at making a money spinner. It's just a, an environment that people can meet. One of the things I find is that it's good to meet other people in the endeavor that you wish to become successful. Sure. All this time that you spent interviewing successful people in business and marketing has had a profound effect on you. You would not have got as successful as you are if you hadn't interacted, met some people, had an interview a few times. That's right. Yeah, because there's a lot of stuff that you learn from doing this interaction. Oh, absolutely. Now, interesting luck, we've been knowing each other for what? about five years now. Yeah, that's right. We've yet to actually physically meet. <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, but there will come a day. Sure there will. I mean, I've referred hundreds of people to your site. I appreciate that. You know, there's plenty of business that you'll get that way. That's the interesting thing is that you can build these relationships and then one day, timing will dictate that there's an opportunity that you can do together. Sure. Right? Because once you've built that friendship and you've built that trust and credibility, it's just a waiting game for who's going to do business with you today. That's exactly right. I mean, we're talking now because I had the recording on a CD. I re-edited it, and you heard it, and you called me, and it's exactly right. Exactly. For example, I run my club. I have enough people contacting me that my diary is for. For example, I don't get so many emails from you nowadays. Because I know you've got to a point where you've got a big enough list and enough things are happening. We don't necessarily even have the time to follow our marketing principles that we were learning when we were keen and mean. Yeah, that's true. You're busy. I mean, if your diary is full, you've got all the customers handling, what's the point in sending out an email saying, hey, let's do more business? That's exactly right. You know, you just say, okay, it's a bit of a quiet month, right, let's send out an email, let's create some activity. For me, I've got to the point where my pipeline for the next year is full. And I've seen from my records, I know 
how many people come to our events, what that translates into opportunities and deals. In fact, I have slowed down my marketing because it's got to a point where we've got enough people coming that I don't need to do any more marketing to generate more business. Right. There's only so much business that I can personally handle. So where are you focusing most of your time? Doing deals, buying properties? I'm just doing deals. I don't look at whether it's a property deal or a business deal or an internet deal. I don't really get too hung up on that. What I find is that I keep my toe in two or three markets so that each of them has their own little pattern. If you're 100% in real estate, there is a cycle. You know, there are some months when it doesn't work and you're kind of up and down all over. I really do three types of things. I do property. I do online property, if you like, you know, the internet. And I do conventional, normal business. Those three keep me very busy because I don't really have to worry about which one is more. If um, the internet seems to be going, I hope, then, you know, that's where I spend my time. If real estate kind of goes quiet for two, three years, no biggie. Like yourself, you've got lots of different products, haven't you? Yeah. And each of them has their own little cycle. Some kind of get very busy and then they kind of fritter out and then you kind of leave it for a bit and then you kind of pick it up again. So the way I look at it is I have my different markets and I let the volume of activity of those markets and profit drive my time allocation. Too many people kind of get a bit one-legged. I never 100% do real estate and I never drop all out, but I kind of increase or decrease the time depending on where I feel the profit opportunities are. So, for example, at the moment, I'm seeing a lot more stronger profit opportunities on the internet. That is just not slowing down. Anything uh, specific that's exciting? I think what's interesting, for example, like with your websites that you've been doing, I've noticed that you've been doing a lot of sort of replication of your content sites. I really think for you, that's an untapped market in creating sites which you could run, manage, or operate. Because at the moment, your sites are quite static, aren't they? Yes. But what I found is there's an area that we're looking at, which I can't necessarily go into because it's just a bit confidential, but I'll give you the essence of what we do. Going back to our yellow pages, what you will generally tend to find is that a lot of these businesses, if you take any yellow page section, what I recommend you do is go and look at every single website for the businesses that are advertised in a section. Right, what do you think you'll find? Uh, static sites, like their yellow page ads. Yeah, yeah. Brochureware, basically, it's been uploaded, mm -hmm. nothing happened, okay, we are so-and-so, blah, 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 call us. It sits out there on the internet, it really doesn't do anything. And where I've seen the real profit is where people start integrating their website and their internet presence into their business and creating marketing machines. So just like how you do with hard-to-find seminars, you have people come visit, there's an opt-in page, do the audio, right? You can give them some bonus offer. You have an autoresponder. So those in marketing, these are really basic things, aren't they? Yes. You go to the offline, go to the yellow pages and pick any section, landscaping, gardening, and look at their website. The reason they have a website, because everybody else has a website. And what they've done is they've gone to a friend or family and said, can you knock us a site? What I found that we're doing at the moment, and at the moment it's still early stages, but I definitely have done the research to know that it has the, the profit potential, is providing customized websites that are market generating, lead generating. So you take an industry and you actually create almost like a cookie cutter website with a little bit of customization. You write an autoresponder series educating your buyers on the particular topic and everything, but in a very generic element. You have physical products 
that they can buy. So information products, the site can take the order, but the business doesn't have to do the fulfillment, or it can choose to do the fulfillment and use that as a way of introducing itself. So what you do is you approach someone, say for example like a landscaper, and you create you know, a free report, the 10 best ways of looking after your land care, lawn, etc. And then what you do is you give them a physical ad or a flyer, they can hand out and distribute, driving people to the website and the free report. Catch a name and email address, educate them, use the full multimedia experience. We even, in fact, use teleclasses. But none of this is operated by the owner of the business. So, for example, we can do a teleclass on things that you need to know about how to improve the lawn care. And what we do is we have the system send out an email to all the subscribers on all the different websites, inviting them to dial in on a conference call to hear an expert talk about the pros and cons. The email going out has the name and address of the individual owner of that site who's operating that business. Not very complicated things, is it? No, not at all. When you go to an owner and say, hey, we can tell you these 10 people who registered for next week's tele-seminar, and here's their name, phone number, and they just said they wanted to go to a free tele-seminar on how to improve the lawn care. It's held next Thursday, da da da. If on the Friday you got a phone call from the owner saying, hey, did you enjoy the tele-seminar? What would you think? That'd be great. We kind of do these things where we orchestrate marketing to warm the list up and then just to create appointments for the people running the site to contact them. Now, the difference is this. It's what you would typically do for one small business owner. You might do that for a restaurant. You might do that for a doctor, a dentist, or a plumber. The difference is this. When you can do it for an industry, you only really have to write it once and you can sell it many times. I've got a client for my consulting business, the HMA system. I'm taking a client through the system, which consists of uh, seven different steps, and he's allowed me to document and record everything. So the first step was developing the USP. So I've got all the conversations with him recorded. I call his customers. I talk to his employees. I talk to the competition, all that recorded, and it's integrating that USP into his existing marketing. I have that whole concept recorded so I'm only doing it once he's a tanning bed operator so I'm going to have an entire system that's duplicated that I could sell to anyone who has a retail tanning bed store that would help grow their business a classic example with the tanning because I've done one or two things with the tanning industry it's a, a hyper repetitive buying business uh, once people try out a tan there's a fixed number of times they come in the year for X number of minutes. The number of tanning people that actually capture name, email address, mobile phone and address of their clients, very, very few. The number that actually do, for example, postcard marketing. It's almost nil. Is nil. Is it, the other thing that they don't do is they don't do customer segmentation. What we did is I had the guy put another phone line and he only had one phone line. All his calls were forwarded to a service that I have which records all the calls. So he let his employees know that the calls were going to be monitored for quality assurance. Each call was recorded and I analyzed his calls for about a week and a half, two weeks. So I could download the recording of the call. I put an hour's worth of calls together 
of the girls handling the calls. There were three receptionists. I am telling you 99% of all those calls were lost. They were trying to sell packages on the phone. They weren't capturing a name. They were letting everyone go without capturing a name and a number. So then I had Richard. He's the expert in my HMA system. So we analyzed each one of the calls showing the lost opportunity. Then we corrected the problem. We created a script for the girls, and then they were getting names and numbers and booking appointments probably 80 to 90% of the time. And then you look at all the calls that came in, I analyzed that one little step was probably going to be worth sixty to $70,000 to that tanning bed operator. It's funny, actually, because when I sit down with website owners, what I focus on is just, okay, when someone comes to the website, what do you do get them to opt in. And opting in, for example, in the offline business is name, phone number, address, or some form of contact information. Right. Not necessarily email, because a lot of the people in the tanning market may not be very high user right. internet. Right. right. But everybody will have a phone number or a cell number, right, and they'll have an address. The key is not to focus on trying to sell them things, focus to put them on the database, and then second, to have a systemized mechanism of following up with these people continuously. Because once you've got a consistent method of capturing people, so for example, one of the things is he probably has flyers. Or He's got brochures, yeah. Well, in those things, he should be focusing on people to go onto a different number, mm-hmm. which is the new prospect number, just to capture the details. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, for example, one of the things that you do with the tanning thing is, you know, you give out flyers, free tan or something like that, and you have an 800 number, which, again, the script that you've tested in the office, you can then outsource to somebody else to do 100%. Okay, and then what happens is you don't book the appointment because it's not that important necessarily. Once you've got the contact team, if you know that they give you those three or four answers, then the appointment making isn't really that relevant, right? Because you've got all the contact information, got the script working. You then say to the people, right, capture contact detail. Even if you, like for example, we've done this where we said, okay, what day would you like? Thursday, six o'clock. Okay, great, it's booked. No matter what they say, it's booked. Then what happens is that detail is emailed electronically to the receptionist. The receptionist looks, oh yes, we can do that time, slot it in. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can't do that time because it conflicts. Ring them up and just say, hi, we're sorry, we've had a bit of a double booking. Do you mind if we can change? We can do this day and that day. Well, we're getting them in. What we're doing is we get them on the phone. They're calling. They're shopping price. We tell them we don't discuss pricing over the phone. So we eliminate all that pricing confusion with the customers. We don't offer pricing over the phone, but if you're a first-time visitor, we have a special offer. We tell them three reasons why we're different, and then we say you can come in for three tans, and there's no obligation. You can do three tans, and you can name your own price. Now, he would sell three tans for nine ninety nine, but by doing name your own price, it's totally different. They do a double take. They go, what? Name your own price. So it gives the receptionist a chance to explain, we just want to make sure you're happy. Come on in. You do three tans, no obligation. Most people are honest and going to pay more than that $9.99 for three tans. So that's the point classic, open door, risk free. We say the offer is good for the next two days only. And we get them in. You you force an action and a decision time to get them to come in. And what you find is that typically the people that are going to buy will take the action within a certain time window, three days or whatever. Make your offer a time that is attractive to the buyers and to the fence-sitters. And what have you lost? You've lost nothing. Yeah, when it comes to worst is you capture the name and you catch them on the next one. Building a database of names of people that have responded to your marketing ads or just phone in is so critical because, you know, if someone's wrong, that is money. That's right. right. And you develop a simple script. And if the script gets the contact details for only 
Well, that's fine. All you've then got to focus on is saying, right, let's get the phone to ring twice. Now, I've got this service I was telling you about. Once the calls are put into the service, it has an automatic feature where it'll pick up the caller ID number, even on calls that don't have caller ID or have caller ID blocking, and it'll research and pull out the mailing address of that call all automatically. Brilliant. Isn't that awesome? That is fantastic. All automatically. So you have all the calls logged and recorded. Another great thing about that is you can give the receptionist instant feedback. So if I'm monitoring the calls and I hear her forget to ask for a name and number, I can call her back instantly and let her know that she forgot the name and number. So it's a great training tool and to be able to collect automatically the names and addresses of the numbers. And then there's some great technology, you probably know about it, which is the voice broadcasting. We're looking at doing some of that here in the UK. I'm just testing that. All, all over the Internet. Multiple companies have it. It's so easy. I've spoken to a few companies in the States, and I'm very familiar with how it works in the States. Here in the UK, it requires a little bit more. Technology-wise, we're a little bit behind when it comes to those things. But we do that a little bit. We also do a lot of text messaging. We find text messaging works great. So a classic thing that you have, you know, with the appointment, right, in the morning, text everybody. Uh, it's something I don't know about, the text messaging. So how would you text message an entire list? Do you do it through a phone or can you do it from an online, online. source? So, for example, I do my event. On the day of the event, everybody gets a text message. Do they all have to have the same version mobile cell phones? No, no, actually, I have one that is a global provider. It will let me text numbers in anywhere in the world. It will text message anyone who has a phone? Anyone that's got a cell phone in most of the countries. And this is an online company? Yeah, yeah. What are they called? I'll tell you the name of the website okay. that you can go to. It's called Click ATEL. Yeah, so if you go www, click ATEL. This is the service that I use. It's based in South Africa, but they're a very good organization. I've been using them for over a year. I found them to be quite reliable. What do they charge? Basically, the way it works, they've got a, like a whole pricing. So I'll tell you what it costs in the UK. It roughly costs me about five pence or about ten cents to send an SMS. In different countries it will be different. Are cell phone providers getting spammed with text messaging now? No, because it costs more. And what happens is the person sending it has to pay for it. Text messaging is a funny thing. It's a lousy prospecting tool because you've only got something like 160 characters in which to communicate. So there's not really much you can say. And what you can do is it's a much better uh, communication tool with clients that already know you. So two things that I do is on the day of an event, I just text everybody saying, see you at 6 o'clock tonight. Regards. Now, when you send out the message, you can put your mobile number or uh, an answer number so they can respond back, mm-hmm. okay? And what I find is people are highly responsive and communicating through text. So I normally get a whole bunch of people, if they can't make it, they text back and say, sorry, can't make it. Do they type it in or call you back by pressing a return call? Um, half and half. Okay, so they can call you live where they get your voicemail or you pick up. Exactly. On the day of the event, what we do is we have a phone that's allocated for any problem. But what we found is that by sending them a message saying, hey, is your appointment's later on tonight or whatever, it kind of jogs their memory. And then if something happens where they're going to cancel, they don't have to be scrambling around thinking, okay, where's the number? They remember the text is on the phone. Okay, great. So one of the things is when you're confirming appointment, it's a great way of sending out the text on the phone because you'll find people who are going to cancel on you are more likely just to ring up and be polite because it's all there to action. And so, you know, you've got the ability to reschedule an appointment, 
so you're not losing the sale necessarily. Because you can just talk to them and say, oh, okay, you know, you're working late and whatever. You know it's on the cell phone because you can have one which is just the appointment line. So you know people can pick that up. And it's relatively cheap. For example, when we do conference calls, people forget. They're not always by their email. We send them a message a few hours before the conference call is going to start. You can't always guarantee that people are going to read their email a few hours before a conference call starts. That's true. For example, with your tanning business client, you should seriously look at sending out text messages to confirm appointments. So all you need is their cell phone number. Which they're all going to provide. Okay, and what you can do is for 10 cents, you can confirm appointments or you can communicate to everybody. You know, one of the things that you can do is you can just put like a web address, okay? Or what you can do, you have to tweak it a little bit. And what we've done and we've been testing is we send out a text message, which is really just the headline. And then the call to action is dial this 800 number, which is for the free voice recording. So what happens is we send out a text and it's kind of, hey, two day special. Right, to hear more, click the reply button. The number going out is actually an 800 number mm -hmm. that they can listen to the message. And then in your own voice, you say, hi, thanks for replying. And obviously, because you know you've got an 800 number with like a, a long voicemail, effectively, please leave your name and number if you want us to call you back or make an appointment. You will get, obviously, all the cell phone numbers of all the people who replied back. So what you know is all the people who clicked through, listen to your two-minute void broadcast, and the people who've left the message. Does the website track any of the callbacks? What we normally do is we get it to an 800 number, which is a voicemail, which then tracks who's coming in. Okay, got it. Like your calling system. But what it means is when you're broadcasting out your text message, instead of it being a cell phone number that they dial by, they're yeah. dialing back to an 800 yeah. number. When someone receives a text message, does their phone ring or vibrate or whatever they have it set on? Whatever it's set on, yeah. Okay. So usually what we tend to find is people are very responsive to text messages. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I wanted to know more about that. Thanks. Well, what you find is that it's a great way of communicating to people in a slightly different way. The whole point is use the medium that works best for all the things. What happens in confirmation, text messages work really well. So, for example, a good thing would have been if I'd given you my cell phone number today, an hour before or two hours before, you could have sent me a text saying, hey, Vanish. Look forward to speaking to you at six. Because the email, you may or may not necessarily. That's have. true. People are out and about, especially if you've got a mobile organisation. So, for example, your people making the appointments for your tanning tend to be very mobile. I would say over 90% of them have got a cell phone. Yeah, they're calling from the cell phone. They want to come in there. Exactly. So, one of the things is this: use the cell phone to create marketing touches. But what you do is you send the text message, which is really. The headline ad, hey, we've got a special offer. To hear more about it, please call. And you train your people and educate them. And then it goes to the two-minute broadcast, so the voice broadcast, if you like. So you know who's listening to it. And at the end of it, give them a call to action. If you're interested, leave your name and number, and we'll call you back and we'll set up an appointment. And we found that to work very effectively, because if you suddenly want to book out an appointment next week, you know, it's looking a little bit low, you can just give them a free incentive. You've got all the text numbers of all the people, and then you just blast it out. You couldn't really do that with a postcard because the postcard would cost you about 30 cents. It'll take a day or so to get there. Then they've got to kind of read it and then they've got to go and do all the other actions. Whereas with a text message, you can create sales within a 24-hour period.
That's true. That's very good. So where you've got things like not maybe the next day's diary is not looking so great, uh, after testing, you'll realise if we send out 100 texts, we're going to get an appointment. And again, then you've just got to work out the math. Yeah, that's true. That's very good. Something for you to think about. Oh, uh, appreciate it. It has been nice uh, <laughs> talking with you, Michael, as always. Same here, Vance. I really appreciate your time. That's the end of our interview with Vanish Patel. I hope you have found it helpful. For more great interviews on business, sales, and marketing, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.